Hello again, Ars Technica listeners. This is the second installment of a four-part interview with neuroscientist, New York Times bestselling author, podcaster, and controversial public intellectual, Sam Harris. This one will be mainly about his personal background and the road which took him to being the thinker that he is. But also toward the end of the interview, we get into some of his neuroscientific research. Then in tomorrow's segment, and also in Friday's segment, we'll focus on his iconoclastic take on the world. And away we go. I'd like to consider the life trajectory that made you expert in all these topics, starting at the first time our lives overlapped without either of us realizing it. We were both uh, undergraduates at Stanford at the same time. Uh, I was a year ahead of you, young man. Mm. And I'd like to go back that far just briefly because you embarked on an unusually bold and, as it turned out, unusually long project for one of an undergraduate age. And it's a project that I think has a great deal to do with who you are now. So when you arrived at Stanford, you're on campus, you haven't yet made this bold decision to take an enormous amount of time off. What was your thinking of religion at that point? Were you an atheist already? If you were, was that a major part of your identity, a minor part? Well, I was definitely an atheist, but I wouldn't have called myself one. I, I, the, the term atheist was not really in my vocabulary. I, I was completely unaware of the, the history of, of atheism, or organized atheism. I you know, wouldn't have known who Madeleine Murray O'Hare was. And I, I had never been given religion by my parents, so I wasn't reacting against some dogmatism that had come from, from the family. And you came, your parents were from very different religious traditions, correct? Yeah, but both just were not uh, practicing just unreligious yeah. yeah i mean they were just they were uh, they, but again they were not atheists they wouldn't have called themselves atheists but you had one of your parents was raised quaker is that right yeah, quaker and 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 my mother's jewish and so I mean, this is also slightly an artifact of what it is to be surrounded by cultural jews who are not religious i mean mm. so judaism is almost unique in that you can have people for whom their religion is still a seemingly significant part of their lives they 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 care that they're jewish but there is zero otherworldly or supernatural content to their thinking about what it is, what it means to be a Jew. I, I believe yeah. it probably is unique. I mean, maybe the Parsis have something similar. Yeah, and this this Jewish experience of of secularism is fairly misleading to most Jews, I, I find, because they, they they kind of assume that everyone else has lost their religion to to the same degree. You know, so I, I've debated conservative rabbis who, when push came to shove, revealed they believed almost nothing of the, that could be classified as, as religious. I mean, like when you, their, their notion of God was so elastic as to commit them to almost nothing. You know, like nothing specific about what happens after death, nothing that can necessarily be prayed to or that can care about human events. And again, I'm not, I'm not talking about Reformed Jews. I'm talking yeah. about conservatives. You know, you know the ultra-Orthodox you know, believe a, a fair number of imponderable things. But uh, short of, of that, Judaism has really been denuded of its otherworldliness. I grew up in that kind of context where even religious people, again, my family wasn't, but even people who went to synagogue didn't believe anything, right? So I was f- fairly sheltered from the, the culture wars in that respect and um, hadn't was just unaware of the, the kind of work that religious ideas were were doing in the world or in the lives of even 
you know, even people on the coasts in different you know, faiths. And when I got to Stanford, I remember being in the Great Books Seminar, and the Bible was one of the books we that is considered great and that we had to read. And I remember getting into debates with people who had clearly come from a a, you know, a Midwestern Christian background, say, or a, a more of a Bible Belt uh, experience. And just, I mean, having absolutely no patience for their belief that this book was fundamentally different from the Iliad and the Odyssey or anything else we were reading in this seminar. And the professor's way of holding that text in particular compared to the other books. I don't know if she was religious, but she seemed to be carving out a kind of different place on the bookshelf for this this text to occupy. And from my point of view, the, the stuff we were reading wasn't even great. I would admit that there are great parts of the Bible, but I mean, we were reading Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy and just, I mean, these are, these are the most deranged recipes for theocracy that have ever been written. I mean, these are certainly sections of them are worse than anything that's in the Quran or, or any other terrible book. I was just astonished that we were wasting time reading this stuff. I mean, the, the, the only argument for reading it, in my in my view then, and, and it's really my view now, is to understand how influential the book has been elsewhere. I mean, so you, you want to be able to understand the allusions in Shakespeare, you have to be conversant with the Bible, right? Uh, but the idea that this is somehow uh, a great flowering of human wisdom, you know, the, again, specifically books like Deuteronomy and, and, and Leviticus. Those are books in which the the grim punishments for people who step out of line, among other things, are detailed in in kind of gory detail. Yeah, correct? and they're not allegories for anything. It's just, these are the reasons why you need to kill not only your neighbors, but members of your own family for thought crimes. Right. Here's how you, you should be living. Uh, and it's just, you almost couldn't invent a worse worldview. And the, the corollary to that is anyone any neurologically intact person in five minutes can improve these books spiritually and ethically and politically and in every other way, scientifically, economically. I mean, there's just nothing that th this is the best for, or even good for, apart from uh, creating conditions of, of, you know, Taliban level intolerance mm. in a society. Uh, if that is, if you know, people actually believe this stuff, and uh, you know, very few Jews now believe that you should be paying any significant attention to Leviticus or Deuteronomy, uh, and Christians have their own reasons for ignoring it. But uh, what we're witnessing in the Muslim world is that there are analogous texts, the, you know, the parts of the Quran being one, and and the Hadith and the, the biography of Muhammad being the rest of the canon, which detail, you know, very similar levels of, of intolerance and, and a commitment to prosecuting thought crime. And many, many millions of people take them very, very seriously. And so you were in a state of outrage at the fact that these texts were being held up as, as great. You were certainly not a believer um, no. in any manner. Atheism may not have been a word you would have applied to yourself, but it, it was something that you essentially, from what you're describing, that's kind of what you were yeah. on the inside. Yeah. If you look at the DSM, 10-year uh, journeys of spiritual discovery are generally not considered to be symptoms of atheism. Yet, from that mm. point of de facto atheism, 
you essentially did take off on, is it fair to say, a 10-year journey of spiritual discovery Mm -hmm. and near full-time exploration of consciousness? Yeah. So what happened is I I took MDMA for the first time, and I had taken other drugs, uh, other psychedelics as a teenager. I mean, really just mushrooms a few times. And I will add that Stanford in the late 80s was awash in MDMA long before it entered the club scene in the UK. Oh, which interesting. Is, yeah, it was, it was all over campus. And I didn't know that, actually. I'd never encountered it. Yeah, so. yeah. No, it was all over the place. Um, and we called it X in the United States. And then the Brits, who kind of discovered it a few years later, called it E. Uh-huh. And it was something that was just so part of, of just sort of the fabric that I mistakenly thought it was a very, very widespread drug. And it didn't become widespread until much, much later. Right. Um, now, yeah. I wasn't as bold as you. I actually um, was fearful of this stuff. Uh, but it was everywhere. It was definitely everywhere in the 80s. Yeah. Then, then we were, you were in, in hipper circles than I was. Because, well, you were hipper than I was because yeah, you actually yeah. tried it. But, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, maybe it was everywhere because I had taken it. And I was, <laughs> yeah, I was, it was like, well, Sam's on yeah, it. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I was evangelizing uh, pretty hard, uh, at least to uh, three captive friends when I got back to campus, because it really did blow my mind. I mean, it, it just changed everything about what I thought was possible. So that was the life. pivoting incident. That was what yeah. caused you to, I, I didn't realize that. So that was the thing that caused you to say, I'm, I'm out of here, at least for now. It's connection to my dropping out was a little less direct than that. It took a little more time, but mm. I mean, it, t- it just took like a, a quarter, you know, but it was, yeah. you know, ten, 10 weeks later, I, I, I was not enrolling again. But I guess I took it during spring break or something. I wasn't at Stanford. I was back home when I took it. This is something I write about in, in the beginning of my, my book, Waking Up. Yeah. It was the first experience I had where the implications of the, that change in my consciousness, they were far more global and they, and they, they suggested something about the, the possibility of changing one's consciousness in a more durable way. I, I, I wasn't left thinking, wow ecstasy is amazing or you know that's a, that was a very interesting drug experience it seemed to unmask something about the nature of my own mind mm. that was more true than what i was tending to experience right so so the the experience of coming down from it was the experience of having my actual true self in a way occluded by neurotic layers of my personality that were being rebuilt, you know, by my, by, that had been suppressed by the drug. Mm. So, I mean, the experience was briefly of just feeling all self-concern drop away so that I was, you know, sitting, I was talking to my, one of my best friends and still is one of my closest friends and he had never taken it before either. So we, we both took this and we, again, we took it this is before anyone had a rave or, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, and we took it very much in the spirit of trying to find out something interesting about our minds. This was, we weren't, weren't partying. This was, this was more of a Timothy Leary than a Ken Kesey yes. type of experience. Yeah. I mean, it, was, this was given to us as this was, had been kind of an export from the psychotherapeutic community. Like this is, this is a drug that shows you something about, you know, the, the, the nature of spirituality, the nature of, of love ultimately. So we, we were just curious about what was there to be discovered. And I just remember talking to him and there was nothing psychedelic about it at all. I mean, there were just no visual distortions, no sense of coming onto a drug, just this increasing sense of moral and emotional clarity Mm -hmm. where I just have more and more free attention to just talk to my friend. I'm getting less and less every moment as as I'm coming onto this. Uh, And it took a while for me to recognize what had happened, but 
I'm becoming less and less encumbered by the concern about what he's thinking about me. I mean, so like I'm looking into his eyes and I'm no longer like, the, and he, you know, there's changes in his, his facial expression in response to what I'm saying. And I'm no longer reading that as a message about me. It's like, mm. it's like I'm no longer behind my face looking at him, no longer tacking in the wind of, of somebody else's attention on me. There was just a, a sense of total zero self-concern. I, mean, I just, my attention was not on myself at all. I was simply paying attention to my best friend. And that pure granting of attention was love. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was just like, I, I mean, what I was experiencing more and more as the minutes ticked on was just a total commitment to his happiness, just uh, his well-being, just wanting, you know, everything that good that could possibly happen for someone to happen to him, mm -hmm. right? And that was just a, there was nothing transactional about that. There was just a, a pure state of, of being. It was just, just like the state of being fully attentive to another person as just the, the locus of kind of moral concern. And this led you to decide that you wanted to significantly alter your curriculum, I guess. I mean, you were at that yeah. point taking the, you were a sophomore at this point? Yeah. So uh, not a notoriously delightful year for anybody, but you were taking a lot of things, preparing to declare your major if you hadn't yet already. And so I assume that this made you realize that there was a different curriculum you wanted to pursue in a sense. Well, uh, so ironically, it led me to realize that all of the otherwise incoherent and offensive noises that religious people had been making for millennia mm. actually actually were inspired must have been inspired by this by experiences like, like this, this right yeah. so like that like whatever you want to think about christianity and the bible jesus was probably talking about this right or something like this so the the, the one thing that just bore in upon me like a freight train in that experience was the recognition that millions of people had had experiences like this and many not through drugs but through you know prayer and fasting and, and you know other contemplative exercises yoga meditation and so there was a path right I mean, the, the, your 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 mind could be more and more like this mm -hmm. than than mm -hmm. mine had tended to be and and mine, without chemicals yes yeah because yeah, it's all just chemicals i mean it the, is the, yeah the, it's all the, the drug is is you know drugs are are mimicking neurotransmitters or inspiring neurotransmitters to behave differently. I mean, so you, you only have a few levers to pull in there. But I, I, I didn't have a background in neuroscience at that point. And I had been an English major. And so when I went back to school, there was nothing in school that I could connect with that, that immediately seemed like, well, this is, this is the most rational use of your time, given what you just experienced. And I also was writing, I was planning to write fiction. I, and I wanted to write I know you were working on yeah, a novel, yeah, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah. so I dropped. So I had a kind of a dual agenda when I dropped out. I, I was going to write a novel and study meditation. I was. I started going on meditation retreats. So the novel was a big part of your agenda then. At that yeah. point, what was yeah. it about? I'm dying to know. The first way, I, so I wound up writing a couple of short, like novellas mm -hmm. that I never attempted to publish. I mean, just I would get to the end of one and just think, okay, I can't totally stand behind this. And and I also didn't have a connection to other novelists. I didn't have an agent. I didn't I didn't really understand how to to proceed. But I mean, it was more important that I would get to the end of a project and feel like it just wasn't going to work. I mean, one was actually very much 
on this topic. I mean, it was kind of, kind of dealing with a kind of like a spiritual teacher and, and just kind of very fraught with the philosophy of kind of Eastern mysticism at that point. I wrote another one that was, uh, it was called Letters to God. It was, it purported to be, I mean, it was kind of like a, 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 a pale fire exercise in, you know, footnotary and yeah, it's yeah. like a, like a, it was purported to be a found manuscript. So I was writing fiction and then going on meditation retreats that were getting well, kind of longer and longer. And then I was going to India and studying meditation with various teachers and, and they going to Nepal. And I mean, this is mostly in a Buddhist context. And did you buy into the religiosity of Buddhism? Because often, I mean, there's extraordinarily powerful spiritual practice that is embedded in Buddhism, but in other contexts, you've said, you can access that and leave the religiosity behind if you wish. You're coming in as a, as a young person, as a novice of sorts, into this community. Was it easy for you to take sort of almost the neuroscientific wisdom that was being transferred and leave out the religious wrapping that I imagine it often came in yeah. with if you were going on retreat and going to monasteries and things like that. Yeah, not entirely. I mean, I was not, I never became a religious Buddhist or much less a religious Hindu, though I was studying with 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 teachers in both traditions. But I was not yet a scientist. I was not yet really scientifically literate. I mean, my background, I, I'd been studying English at, at Stanford. Yeah. And hadn't taken many science courses at that, at that point. And yeah, I became very interested in the, in the philosophy of mind and in the conversation that was happening between philosophers and scientists about the nature of consciousness. So I was reading, I was getting some brain science in reading what philosophers were saying. And I was mm -hmm. reading some stuff at the, at the margins of, of neuroscience. And then I was also reading a fair amount of, kind of popular physics because a lot of the popular physics was being marketed as a, a way of cashing out people, uh, kind of new age mysticism. You know, so the people were, you know, kind of hurling books at me on quantum, quantum mechanics, mechanics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the scientific and philosophical confusion there was not yet obvious to me. So, mm -hmm. so at, at a certain point, undoubtedly when I'm, you know, up to my eyeballs in, Krishnamurti and, and, you know, reading patently magical books like Autobiography of a Yogi, you know, Paramahansa Yogananda. And then I'm also reading, you know, Ken Wilber and pe people who are wrapping up Eastern wisdom with basically the, the spookiest exports from physics. So if you had asked me what I thought the universe was like at that moment, I undoubtedly some new age gobbledygook could have could have come out you know which would which is i i now view as, as quasi religious mm -hmm. there's a fair amount of confusion there and so I, and i've debated people like deepak chopra who who still promulgate that kind of confusion but i was never so I, I was always interested in just in the experiential component of meditation and, and any of these paths of, of practice but when you go f far enough into the experiential component and begin to confirm some of the very surprising things, some of the very surprising claims about the nature of, of the mind that only seem to get made by people in the East, for the most part, who are also making claims about the, the magic powers that come with, with attaining you know, very high states of meditation or, you know, and, and the, the miraculous feats of various yogis and, and, and gurus. Uh, well, then uh, you find you're surrounded by people who believe, for instance, that they're favorite yoga teacher can read their minds right and mm -hmm. so like so it, the, and i was always 
somewhat skeptical of the, of these stories. I mean, the, I don't think I had the the phrase confirmation bias in my head, but I I could see that the, the disposition among these people to believe, the, the desire to believe these stories to be true, fervent, yeah. yeah was um, I mean, there was very little resistance in the system uh, to just accepting everything uncritically. I think I was, you know, I was on the skeptical end there, but I was not spending any time trying to debunk claims about magic. I was simply just trying to get to the most qualified teachers and learn what that whatever they had to teach. And it was roughly a ten year period, correct? Yeah, in which you were you were going yeah. on to retreats, coming back. How many of those ten years were you in silent meditation? Was it a, would it total to a year or more? Yeah, it, it totaled to about two years. If you strung them all yeah. together, the various silent retreats. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was I was doing. I never did a, a silent retreat longer than three months, mm. but I did. I did a, a couple of three months, a couple three of two months. months sounds and, like yeah. a doozy to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's long. It's it's just an amazing experience. I mean, there's something you know, paradoxically. You can experience the same thing in a moment off retreat. It's not that there's in principle the necessity of being in silence, but for most people, it's amazingly powerful to go into silence. It's an experience unlike any you tend to have, even when you're spending much of your day alone and out in the world. You know, for those who who don't have an experience with meditation, this is, I guess, some explanations in order, but I mean, so whatever practice of meditation you're doing, you're really in two conditions while doing it. You're either lost in thought, you're just distracted by your the kind of the automaticity of, of discursive thought, and you've just forgotten that you were supposed to be meditating, or you're paying attention to the thing you're trying to pay attention to, and that is your practice of meditation. And we spend so much time in our lives, lost in thought, having a conversation with ourselves that we're not aware of having. Uh, and so much of this conversation is neurotic. So much of it is producing unhappiness. You're thinking about the things you you regret having done. You're thinking about the things that didn't go well moments before, hours before, or days or even years before. You're thinking about what you want, about what you're anxious about, what you're hoping will happen, you know, a moment hence or at some point in the future. And you're spending almost no time truly connecting with the present moment in a way that is deeply fulfilling. And, and so, and to take my experience on MDMA, you know, one of its features was just full immersion in the present moment. There was just zero past and future going on. And part of the ecstasy of that experience is attributable just to that. And this is an experience you really can have in meditation. Focusing on anything to sufficient degree produces an ecstatic state of mind. I mean, there's, there's bliss to be found just in being concentrated. It's just being sufficiently concentrated on the breath or a, a light or anything. It doesn't matter what it is. You can also be additionally concentrated in specific states of mind like loving kindness, which is very much the, the, the emotion that one often experiences on ecstasy. That is a, is a specific meditation practice within the Buddhist tradition. And, you know, in, in other traditions, that there's a devotion to the guru. And, and you know, in, in the Western tr tr tradition, there's, you know, the love of Jesus, right? So there's no question that you can be one-pointedly fixated on the object of your devotion and get that emotion so uh, just intensely realized in your mind that it obliterates everything else. Incredibly expansive experiences of, of uh, await someone who, who can get that concentrated. And again, it, it, it need not even be in the positive emotion of love or devotion. It could just be the breath. Mm -hmm. So I started, I, you know, I started training in various types of meditation for periods up to, you know, three months or so. And so that was punctuating my 
the decade of my 20s. You know? And where were you based and how were you supporting yourself through all this? You were in Palo Alto still for a lot of that, right? Yeah, for some of it, yeah. And I was also in, in New Mexico for a lot of it. So for all these retreats, I, was, I would have to go to a retreat center somewhere. Most of them in Asia or were some of them in the U.S. as well? No, most in the U.S., most of the Insight Meditation Society in Western Massachusetts, which, oh, is, which is a place I, I often recommend to people to do intensive practice. Is that related to John Kabat-Zinn? Because I know he's, he's Boston-based. John is someone who has done a, a fair amount of, of mindfulness practice there, and, he's, and he and I know many of the same people. Uh, but J- Joseph Goldstein... Uh, is one of the founding teachers there, and he's he's been on my podcast a couple of times. And, and, and Joseph is is really a, a fantastic meditation teacher. So I, I often, if when people want to s- sit a a week long or a ten day or you know, a longer meditation retreat, I recommend that they go to the Insight Meditation Society, often abbreviated as IMS, or Spirit Rock, which is in Marin, which is mm. the same philosophy. It's, it's Vipassana meditation, which is otherwise known as mindfulness. So you were based in Palo Alto and Santa Fe, and then would you yeah. would you do stints at Starbucks, or how did how would you keep the lights? No, on? well, I, I mean, I was for better or worse. I mean, in some ways, worse. But you know, I, I was in in a conventionally very fortunate situation of having a family who was just happy to support this project. But it was it was incredibly helpful at one point, and then at another point, it was actually not helpful because mm. for for some years there, I was writing. And I had switched to writing nonfiction. I was writing about consciousness and the nature of mind and the contemplative life. And I really wanted to form a link with the world and publish what I was writing. But I had no, because I was actually financially free, the the wolf was not at the door. You weren't compelled. I wasn't compelled to make a connection. I wasn't compelled to figure out how to publish an article in Harper's, right? And get a track record as a writer. It was very fruitful until it wasn't. Right. It was a kind of like a, you know, a Ted Kaczynski level intellectual isolation, right? You know, <laughs> right, so, yeah. sometimes it leads to bad things. <laughs> yeah. And it took me a while to realize that I had to go back to school. And did you come back to English at that point? Because you were studying English no, at Stanford previously. I came back to philosophy because I had been reading philosophy and, and essentially writing philosophy nonstop throughout, throughout this period yeah, for 10 yeah. years. So. I very much with the attitude of of someone who's going to go to graduate school in philosophy, I went back to finish my undergraduate in philosophy. With an idea that this is a segue into graduate work, but then you ended up pivoting to neuroscience of all things, yeah. which is vastly much more of a hard science. Yeah. How did that pivot come about? I mean, it, it makes imminent sense looking at who you are now and re- regarding it with the benefit of hindsight. How did that come about in the moment? The fact that I had dropped out of Stanford was also just sheer good luck because Stanford is, as you probably know, is like the one school, certainly the one good school that has this policy where you basically can never drop out. I mean, you just- Well, they call it stopping out. Yeah. They don't even call it dropping out. So you've stopped out. And there's a presumption that at some point in your life, you may wish to come back. And if you do, the door is essentially always open, right? Yeah. 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 You know, Tiger Woods can go back to Stanford today. I don't know how long it's been. It's been 20 years or something, but he can just- Walk back in, and the, the the registrar will just have his name Take in the his computer. Check for yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I guess that's it's the way it should be. I mean, I'm sure there's a reason why Harvard and Princeton and other good schools don't do it this way. I mean, they, they don't want you back unless you've been writing them letters every year. Yeah, yeah. And, and at a certain point, I think you have to reapply. You have to give some accounting for you know what what your years in the wilderness have done to you. 
Well, I think you're probably an object lesson and that perhaps that's not such a great idea because yeah. Stanford did get you back and it was to, you know, their benefit and yours and I'd argue to the world's that you were able to slide back into that and make this this pivot to neuroscience. Yeah. And I, and I don't know what would have happened. It's interesting to look back on that because in my t- 20s, I remember at one point, I think I was probably 25 and had the th- first had the thought, I, you know, I should really go back to school to to do this right but the psychological barrier to going, like, I felt so old at mm. 25. Yeah. I felt like I felt so neurotic around, wait a minute, I can't go back and be a junior right. in college at 25. It's flabbergasting for me to glimpse who I was at that moment because, you know, I went back at 30 or 31, very close to 31. And, you know, that's a much more neurosis producing yes. bit of al- algebra yeah. or arithmetic. And it was psychologically hard to do because, I mean, you just picture it. I'm going back and I, I've, again, I've spent now a decade reading and writing on my own. And, and I'm ta- now having to take, just do a full philosophy major, taking all the courses. And I'm doing, doing this as fast as I can because I want to get this done with right, as quickly as possible. Right, because you started with English. Right. So you're, you're, in, you're in like sophomore seminars. You're in like, you're in with freshmen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm taking, I have to take, I'm not getting any breaks. I don't have credit for what I've already read. So, yeah, yeah. And I'm taking a massive course load to do this quickly, but I'm also getting my papers graded by, you know, 20-year-old TAs, right? right? You know, and it was just, I mean, it was brutal. It was just, <laughs> it, um, so... Sam, I think you need to mature as a writer. Yeah, yeah you know... <laughs> Maybe when you were a junior. <laughs> it was an extraordinary experience, um, but it was, you know, ultimately a good one because it was just, at a certain point, it was not about saving face. It was just, you, you just have to use this as a, a crucible to get something, get the tools to, to be able to speak clearly, write clearly, and you just have to get a, get out of your own way. I mean, like, I was spending all of my time focused on overcoming the the hallucinatory properties of the ego, right? right? It's like, I want to wake up from this hallucination where it seems to matter what another person thinks about me, right? Yeah. You know, and conditions how I feel about myself in and the you next know, moment. 10 years of meditation aren't going to get you there. I guess it's just time to go back to school. And yeah, get it done, ex- right? exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what meditation gets you, at least at, at my level, is not a, a permanent inoculation against all of these unpleasant states of mind. It gets you, it, the, the half-life of psychological suffering gets massively reduced. Right. You regain balance rapidly. Yeah. Yes. It's sort of up to you how rapidly. At a certain point, you can just decide, all right, I'm going to stop suffering over this thing, right? And absent an ability to really meditate, you're a victim of whatever half-life it's going to be in your right. case. So if you're going to, if you get suddenly angry now about something that happens, you know, you could be angry for an hour, you could be angry for a day, you could be angry for a week. And, and over the, over that period, you could do all this, the life deranging things that angry people do to screw up their relationships. You've got and, plenty and, of time to do them. Yeah, exactly. If you're angry over a week or a month or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And the, I mean, the difference between being angry for 30 seconds and being angry for an hour is the difference. I mean, it's just, it's impossible to exaggerate yeah. how important that it's is. It's a massive quality of life yeah. Yeah. impact. Yeah. Uh, and so it is with embarrassment and everything else. So you got through, and then neuroscience beckons. Yeah. So then I, I, I was going to do a PhD in philosophy, but I, again, my, my interest was in the philosophy of mind. And I, I thought I would do a, a PhD in philosophy, but it was just so obvious that the philosophers were either having to become amateur neuroscientists to actually interact with what we were finding out about the brain, or they were just 
having a conversation that was completely uncoupled to what, what was knowing what about was known. what we were yeah. known about the brain. And so I just decided I needed to know more about the brain, but I went into into neuroscience very much as a philosopher I mean, with mm. philosophical interests. And I was I never went in thinking, well, you know, maybe I'm I'm going to work on flies. Did you have to take like pre-med courses or anything? Because I mean, I think of neuroscience as obviously it's it's a deeply biological subject. You're going to need to yeah. understand, you know, metabolic pathways, um, neurological pathways. Did you have to take like a whole pile of classes having finally finished this philosophy degree to qualify? As I was finishing my degree at Stanford, and my interest in the brain was was starting to come online. I took a, a, a few courses that were like proper neuroscience courses, and then when I applied, I got kind of provisionally accepted. They wanted me to take a, a genetics course at UCLA. I had about nine months between when I finished at Stanford and started at, at UCLA, and I needed to take a genetics course just to kind of show them how I would function in a proper science class. And that was, you know, you know, I'm, I've always been a bit of a, a, a drudge and a, a good student. So, I mean, there was, there was no problem doing that. And, and you know, happily, what happens when you go into, I don't know if this is true in every neuroscience program, but at UCLA, whatever you've come from, you have to take everything all over again. Mm. So I, I'm surrounded by people who did their undergraduate degrees in, in neuroscience or in you know, molecular biology. But we have to take all these fairly basic courses in you know molecular neuroscience and cellular neuro neuroscience and systems neuroscience and you just have to take it all again if you've done that as an undergraduate so it's review for them and arguably a little bit easier maybe a lot easier but you're all going through it you're getting put to the same level that's good yeah and on some level all of that is a, a just a vast memorization feat, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, certainly neuroanatomy is just this memorization exercise unlike any other. And you're just learning how to play a language game. You're just learning just the concepts and the parts to, 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 and how to talk about them mm -hmm. how and how we currently understand them to be interrelated. Looking back on it, it would be daunting for me to have to do it again now, but it was it was totally fine. And then I, and then you get into your research and then you get into the, you know, having to use the methods and, and answer the kinds of questions you specifically want to ask. And again, there, my interests were, you know, very high level and fairly philosophical. I mean, I was, I was studying belief with functional magnetic resonance imaging, uh, fMRI. And so putting people in the scanner and having them evaluate propositions from various uh, on various topics uh propositions that were either clearly true or clearly false or clearly undecidable and so i was, I was comparing belief and disbelief and uncertainty mm. and just looking at, at what what it means neurophysiologically to be in a state of accepting some propositional claim or rejecting it so what brain regions were lighting up? Yeah, what and what the, yeah. just what the difference is. And I was I was interested to know if it was reasonable to speak about a kind of final common pathway or 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 a content neutral property of just belief. I mean, is granting credence to a uh, a statement about the world is that a a unified thing in mm -hmm. in the brain? And is rejecting something as false a unified thing that is in some basic sense the same? Whether you're talking about the virgin birth of Jesus or two plus two makes four, we're recording a podcast right now, or you're a man, or you went to Stanford, or to evaluate any of those claims as true or false, 
obviously invokes very different kinds of processing in the brain because, you know, math is one thing and, you know, your, your autobiography is another. You know, one is dependent on, on uh, semantic memory. The other is uh, you, you actually have to solve an equation, you know, so there's no expectation that those would be the same. The truth testing wouldn't be the same there, but the, the granting of assent mm-hmm. and crucially for me, becoming emotionally and behaviorally susceptible to the implications, really the imperatives of accepting something to be true or rejecting it as false. So if if someone comes in and says, you know, I I hate to tell you, but your wife is cheating on you. You know, I just saw her, you know, you you think she's on a business trip, but I just saw her at a restaurant with this Lothario who I know, right? Is that true or false? Everything depends on whether that is true or false. And, And your evaluation of it you know, given the, the the right evidence, it's instantaneous, right? It's like your world changes in a moment. The, this this propositional claim, which is just language, it's just right. noises coming out of someone's mouth, or you know, it's just a an email, right? So you're just you're just it's just a, a bit of language becomes your world the moment you grant it credence, and mm. so that that shift. You almost made a belief detector. It yeah. sounds like we did, in fact, make a, a belief detector, which you know, yeah, under the right conditions, would also be a lie detector. Mm-hmm. If you know whether someone is representing their beliefs accurately, you know whether or not they're telling the truth. And you know, the, that's an interesting topic. But the, the future of mind reading machines, I think, we, undoubtedly, will be a future in which we will be increasingly confident whether or not someone is telling the truth. Yeah, because current lie detector technology is from the, what, the 1920s and is notoriously, yeah, it's, notoriously it's not even, easy to trick. Yeah, and it's, but it's, it's not even a valid science. Even if you were not tricking it, you know, it's, it's you could just... inadvertently trick it. Yeah, it's just measuring physiological changes that are correlated with anxiety. But, right. you know, if you're not an anxious liar, then you're... You're, you're, you're going to pass with flying colors. And if you're an anxious truth teller, as some people are. Right. So in the middle of all this research, 9-11 happens. Right. And that, was that a direct trigger to the book End of Faith? Yeah. It was. Yeah. As some of you may know, End of Faith is the first book that really put Sam on the map as a thinker and as a writer, came out in 2004. In the next two episodes of this series, we'll really dig into his thoughts about politics, history, philosophy, science, and quite a bit more. If you can't wait to hear all of that, or if you'd just like to browse my other 36 episodes, you can just head on over to my site at after-on.com or type the words after on into your favorite podcast player. Either way, you'll then see my full archive in reverse chronological order, with Sam's interview slotted in at September 12th of last year. You'll also find tons of stuff about life sciences, genomics, synthetic biology, conversations about robotics, privacy and government hacking, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, drones, and a whole lot more. Otherwise, I hope you'll join me and Sam here again tomorrow on ours.